0: Welcome to Hope Chapel's Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are encouraged by this teaching from God's Word. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic, we are not currently meeting for in-person services, but we would love to have you join us for our live stream at hopechapel.org forward slash live. We stream every Sunday morning at 9 and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. Good morning, people of Hope Chapel. I hope you're all doing well and that you have arranged yourself in your living rooms or you're on your phone you got coffee and your kids are being quiet and everything you need in order uh, to study the word together. So open your Bible to Ruth 2, and we're going to read the entire chapter together, so just bear with me as we do that. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young men, a young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And Naomi said to her daughter, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness is not forsaking the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by the young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. I think a question that uh, I've been asked a lot lately, like sometimes at you know, 3 a.m. on Facebook or through phone calls or in person, uh, is essentially a, a different variation of this question, where is God right now? And people ask this question for a number of different reasons. Sometimes they ask this question because their life is not going very well or they see the circumstances of the world around them and it's hard for them to hold the world circumstances and the goodness of God in the same, same brain. Some, sometimes people uh, just don't feel a good experience of God. They don't feel like God is present. Now, I know that some of you are sitting here today and some of you know or, or believe that you have felt the presence of the Lord and some of you maybe feel like you have never felt that, and some of you have felt it in the past and you're wondering how you can feel it now. And I just want to like submit to you that the question, where is God, is a common one that's asked all over the world and has been asked for thousands of years. We can go back, it's, it's asked in, in the Bible. We can go to Psalm. So, Psalm, Psalm 10 says this. The psalmist says, why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself? In times of trouble, I know that people who are hearing that psalm right now identify with it. Why is the Lord not near? Why does it seem like he is hiding? We struggle with this problem a lot. I have. I know that many people listening have. I want you to see this, though. That same psalm that begins with asking where the Lord is, it ends this way. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. The psalmist goes from asking where the Lord is to a strong declaration of the Lord's presence. He goes from wondering where God is to talking about what it is that God is going to do. It seems like his belief has been strengthened. And I think one of the problems we have as Christians is our experience of the world gets detached from what we know to be true, what the Bible tells us is true, deep theological sweet truths about God, about the Son, about the gospel, about the hope that we have, about the peace we can expect. So what we need to do is rehearse that truth. I like watching um, interviews with, with astronauts after they get back to Earth, and there's this astronaut named uh, Thomas Marshburn, and and he spent um, a long time, he he flew up to the International Space Station in December of one year, and he returned in May of the following year, so like six months, I don't know, 150 days in space, something like that, and then he'll have interviews we'll talk about, you know, space things as astronauts do, and he has one day where he's talking about the, the International Space Station, and he's talking about... The ship that flew them up to the International Space Station, and he's got his coffee thermos. And so he's got his coffee thermos, he's holding, it, and he says, Yeah, so the International Space Station is here, and then he just lets go and turns away to grab something else, and, and the, the coffee thermos just drops to the ground. And so he grabs this pen that he was, was wanting to hold and he looks back and he like, is wondering where his coffee mug is, and he looks on the ground and picks it up and he's kind of annoyed. And then he says, okay, so here's the space station. He's got his pen, and he's taking the pen towards the space station, the coffee mug. And then he wants to gesture to something else. So he lets go of the pen, drops to the ground, like does it up here, goes back. Pen is gone. He's like looking for it, realizes it's on the ground. And then he goes, stupid gravity. <laughs> and what has happened is his um, expectations of the way the world is are no longer squared with the way the world actually is. Reality no longer matches what he expects it to be in his brain. Something that he knows to be true, the existence of gravity, Is no longer affecting the way that he lives his life, just dropping things left and right because there's a detachment. And the only way to reattach is for him to experience gravity. The only way for us to reattach how we feel about the world, wondering where God is, with the theological truths that are in the Bible is to rehearse those truths, to think about them, to reflect on them, to allow them to influence our hearts and our minds, to read about, very importantly, People in the past and their experiences of God as we read them in the Bible. So you may remember the situation of Naomi and Ruth. Elimelech, his name means my God is king. He's from Bethlehem and he takes his wife Naomi and, and his two sons out to Moab, the land of Chemosh, because there's a famine in the land and he thinks there might be food in, in Moab. And in Moab, Elimelech very abruptly dies. And then the two sons marry Moabite wives and they die. And so Naomi is left just with Ruth and Orpah, these two daughter-in-laws who are not Israelites in a foreign land with no way to get any money. Orpah goes back to the household of her mother. And then Ruth, even though Naomi has told Ruth, I have nothing to give you, no money, no food, no husband, nothing. Ruth then commits herself, binds herself to Naomi And one of the most moving passages to my mind in the Old Testament. We can read it here. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. Ruth says, Naomi, I am with you and... More importantly, she says to Naomi, your God is my God. She calls on the name of Yahweh. I think at this point, not really knowing how powerful that name would be. So these two women, they return to Bethlehem where there's now food. And that's where this chapter essentially opens up. They return to Bethlehem. Naomi is unhappy. She's lost everything. And really, we begin to begin to see these people experience the sweet providence of God in their lives in the midst of... Of really bad circumstances. I think we learn about three things. We learn about living faith. We learn about amazing grace. And we learn about rising hope. And and I want to go first to living faith. Uh, Read with me the first three verses. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's. A worthy man of the clan of Elimelech. Whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi. Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. We have to remember this is uh, the time of the judges. It's after the death of Joshua. It's before the appearance of David. This is not a good time in the history of Israel. There's lots of wickedness. And there's, there's lots of unrighteousness. There's war and there's armies coming in. And there's people turning away from the Lord and all kinds of terrible sin. So when Naomi and Ruth return home, they're not necessarily returning to safety, to security, to righteousness, to goodness. They're just going back to where they know there's bread. And so the the thing that Ruth is going to engage in is a relatively dangerous thing. She says that she's going to go and glean. So so just like as as a background, remember, it is the time of the judges. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. We see all kinds of terrible sin and idolatry amongst the Israelites. And then we're introduced at the beginning of chapter 2 to Boaz. And we just simply read now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's. Who was he? He was a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. We learn two things. We learn, one, that Boaz is a worthy man. It probably means he's a godly man, a wealthy man, a man who owned land, a man who was capable. He's described as generally a good guy. We're going to learn more about him later. But secondly, here, we learn that he is of the clan of Elimelech. He is a relative to the family of Naomi. Now, I know us, when we read stories today like romance novels or or romance films, when we hear that people are relatives, we don't immediately think romance. <laughs> but back in the first century, it was a little bit different. When people who were reading this, or not the first century, when people who were reading this way back in ancient times, when they read this and they, and they heard that Boaz was a relative of Naomi's family, their first thought was something could happen here. So we learn that. And then in verse 2, we read this. We read, Uh, And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go my daughter. So Ruth is going to engage in the practice of gleaning. And for us to understand exactly what's happening here, we need to understand something about like Levitical law, everyone's favorite subject on Sunday morning. So we go to Leviticus. We read the Lord say this. And when you reap the harvest of your land, You shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. The idea was this, when you own land in the Old Testament, when you had some wealth and you went to go and harvest that land and the people would come through and use their, I don't know, their size or whatever they are to get rid of all or to to collect all the various, uh, you can tell my my farming knowledge is is breaking down. I'll give you a better example. Um, When I was 12 and I was given the task of mowing the lawn, uh, I wouldn't really get all the way up to the edges and I wouldn't really go back for places that I missed. I would leave those for the gleaners. <laughs> the idea is this. You had land and you were harvesting that land and you would leave portions of that land, the edges and things that had dropped and fallen off and been left behind for those who did not have a reliable source of income to come onto the land and glean the land, take the leftovers. It was a way for God to ensure the provision of poor people amongst the Israelites, of sojourners and foreigners amongst the Israelites, of widows amongst the Israelites. So Ruth, she was going to go out as, as the land was being harvested and she was going to glean in the fields of Bethlehem. And just as a reminder here, Israel, Bethlehem in general, this area is not necessarily a safe place right now. Judges was not a time known for just common righteousness. It was a time known for unrighteousness and wickedness and sin and people hurting each other. And what's more than that, Ruth is a female. Ruth is a foreigner. She doesn't know who owns what land and nobody knows her. What she's doing, by all accounts, would have been dangerous. It would not necessarily have been safe for her to go out alone into the land of Bethlehem, into the fields of the various places in which they lived and glean... Because people were not righteous back then. And it was a danger to her. She moved out in faith, using the means of provision that had been given to God by her. She went out to glean, following the laws of the Israelites. Was it safe? No. Could she be guaranteed that things would go well for her? No. Could she have sat at home and been sad and frustrated? Yes. Could she have turned to illegitimate means of of gaining income? Yes. Instead, what she does is she goes out to the fields of Bethlehem and she gleans as the Lord provides in Leviticus. And then we get to verse 3, this collision of these two scenes. Got the scene with Boaz, the scene with Ruth, and then we read this in verse 3. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field that belonged to Boaz, who is of the clan of Elimelech. So so Ruth is wandering around. She doesn't know who owns which land. She's gleaning at the various fields. And the text tells us that she just happened to come into the field of Boaz. And and the, um, the Hebrew here is like, she chancingly chanced, or like maybe a really, really common translation in the commentaries was something like, by the sheerest of luck, she happened into the field of Boaz, and it's, it's tongue-in-cheek. The, the, the author of Ruth is not saying that she actually just by luck happened to walk into that field. It's communicating that she did not walk into that field by accident, but by appointment. Remember, we're, we're considering the providence of God. It was not the hands of faith that directed her to the field. It was the hand of God, the same hand of God, which delivered the Israelites out from under the Egyptians which part of the Red Sea, which provided for them in the desert. It was the hand of God who intentionally planned for Ruth to be in the field of Boaz. Ruth acts faithfully. And she acts faithfully because I'm convinced that she believes God is faithful. I know right now there are people sitting at home, some of whom are excited some of whom are frustrated and some of whom are sad, some of whom are exhausted. We've had a long week in America and everyone's feeling different things. And this question that needs to be asked of you is how do you right now, how do you continue to live faithfully in light of what's happening in the world around us? And the answer is your faithfulness is rooted in your belief that God is faithful. If you believe as God is faithful, you have strength to be faithful yourself. Ruth goes out and she does what the Lord commands in Leviticus. She acts in faithfulness because God is faithful. Because God is in control. Because God is sovereign over everything. Everything that happened this week, God was sovereign over. Everything that will happen next week, God is sovereign over. It is this um, just like great line in, the, in this, this pastor named Warren Wearsby. Pastor Dale actually turned me on to Warren Wearsby. And, and he says, God's providence works out in our lives in mystery and delight. Do we know everything? No. No. Do we know what the future will be like? No. I've come to, to realize that I myself am a bit of a risk averse person. I don't like not knowing the future. And I often think about all the worst things that can happen. We are often enslaved by our past. We're preoccupied with the present. We're afraid of the future. And all of these emotions, I think many times emotions that become sinful can be tapped down. They can be mitigated. They can be cured. If we take up the belief in the mystery and the delight of the providence of God. How can we be faithful right now? We believe that God is faithful and that he is in control. Trusting in God's faithfulness allows us to have a living faith. We see that happen early with Ruth. Right at the beginning of chapter 2, we read about living faith. I want to move on to amazing grace. Uh, I think there is a pattern in the Bible, a pattern in both the Old Testament and the New Testament that shows that faithful living leads to blessing, leads to God's grace. And what I do not mean by that is that we earn our salvation. I do not mean that. If you're sitting at home... And you think you just heard, you earn your salvation, that's not what I said. I think there's a pattern in the Old and New Testament that faithful obedience can sometimes, oftentimes, lead to blessing. And that's part of what we see in the book of Ruth. We see Ruth continue to act in faithfulness, and we'll see Boaz and Naomi do the same thing, and they're blessed through that. And then we, because Jesus is a descendant of Ruth and, and Boaz, we are blessed through that. But the message of Ruth is not do good and good things will happen to you. I actually think we get to this greater message of Ruth when we get into chapter 2 and we read about Boaz. You may have heard of Charles Spurgeon. He's this famous preacher. He's often called the Prince of Preachers. Um, You can read a bunch of his sermons online and and in books. And he was probably the, the, the first megachurch pastor. If you've never heard of him, he His his sermons were translated into tons of languages the same day in the 19th century, and they were sort of mailed all over the world. Um, And one of the things he says about Jesus Christ uh, that I think helps us to understand Ruth is he called Jesus Christ our bountiful Boaz. And I I always really like that description of Jesus because Boaz is what we would call a type of Christ. He's a figure in the Old Testament that points forward to Jesus and the sort of ministry and mission that Jesus would have—he's both an actual ancestor of Jesus, but he also is a one who, who points forward to who Jesus was. We we um we meet Boaz in in what is it? Verse seven. He he arrives on the scene, and, and the first thing he says to his 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 uh, workers. Let me just let me just go to it, so I so I say it right. Um. He says, uh, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. So in verse one, we learn that, that Boaz was a worthy man, a good man. And, and in, in verse four, we learn that Boaz is a godly man. And remember, it's the time of the judges and things are not really going well in Israel. So there's many senses in which Boaz and, inhabits sort of this different world than the entire world that Naomi and Ruth had been experiencing before. And, and the world that we know is raging around him in Israel. He's a man who seems to be a godly man. And then he notices Ruth. He quickly approaches his own worker and says, "Who who is that in the field? And the answer that the worker gives him is essentially nobody. And he doesn't just say, actually, who is that about Ruth? He doesn't ask, who is that? He asks, whose is that? To whom does she belong? And, and if you're sitting here and you're reading this and thinking, that's really not the sort of thing we would say today about women. I understand that. Uh, at that time, it was necessary for women to be in households with men who could support and care for them. Women did not have their own source of income in any easy way. So he's asking, to whom does she belong? And the worker says, nobody. She's a foreigner. She's a widow. She doesn't belong to anybody. And so Boaz approaches Ruth. And I think here in this chapter, we read about the gospel according to Boaz. We get to see his life play out in such a way that it points forward to the life and the work of Jesus. So I'm going to read 8 through 17 again. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty... "'Go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn.' "'Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, "'Why have I found favor in your eyes, "'that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner?' "'But Boaz answered her, "'All that you have done. "'For your mother-in-law, since the death of your husband "'has been fully told to me, "'and how you left your father and mother and your native land, "'and came to a people that you did not know before.' the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant. Though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat from some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed her a roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her and also pull out some from the bundles of her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned and it was about an effa of barley. I think here we read the gospel according to Boaz. We see Boaz live out a life that's going to look like his descendant, Jesus, who will be one that makes it possible for us to be saved. I I think we could read Ruth and we could say, Ruth is a story about doing good and good things happening to you. That's not what the story is about. The story is about the graciousness of God who gives us what we do not deserve far above and beyond anything we might imagine. And we see that with Boaz here. First, he offers Ruth security, safety and security. A sense, in a sense, a form of salvation. He says to her, stay in my fields, stay in my fields. I've ordered all of my men not to lay a hand on you. Remember, the fields are dangerous. It's not safe for her to go out wherever she wants. He says, if you stay here, you will be safe. It makes me think of Jesus in at least two ways. One is this, when Jesus arrives on the scene of his ministry and he encounters people who are demon-possessed, who are oppressed by demons, who are being harmed by demons, who are not safe, he casts those demons out by word alone and often says to those demons, do not come back. He goes around to places that are in captivity, that are unsafe, and he casts out the demons and he protects those people and he saves them. More importantly is our sense of eternal security. The fact that the Lord, he he finishes what he starts. Paul says this as, as he's writing to the church at Rome. If we look at Romans 8. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he Also glorified. Once God has you. He's not going to lose you. No matter what's happening around you. The world you live in. The political environment you live in. Your financial situation. He will not lose you. He finishes what he starts. You are in the hands of God. And he can keep you safe. It's like Boaz saying to Ruth. Stay in my field. You are safe here. He offers offers a sense of of solidarity. Boaz, he he, uh, is the sort of guy that probably doesn't have to show up to the fields at all. It's clear that he has employees that are taking care of business for him. He certainly doesn't have to stay for lunch. He doesn't have to eat with his men and he does not have to invite Ruth to eat with them, but he does all of those things. He's a worthy man. He's not like a formal king or a prince, but he's in charge. He is in a socio-political sense above everyone else who is there. But he eats alongside them and he invites Ruth to eat with them. He condescends, he gets down to their level. And he does that so that an outsider like Ruth might be made an insider. It makes me think of Philippians 2. I've I've, uh, read it a a bunch of times at church. I'm going to read it a bunch more times. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. I I know you have you've heard uh, online or through friends or through stupid memes that Christianity is like all the other religions. They just generally say good things about God. That is not true. Here's what's unique about Christianity, the Lord of the universe, the one through whom everything was created, the one through whom all things are presently sustained, the one through whom everything will be gathered together at the end. He took on human form. He became like us. He died like us so that we might live like him. We read the story of God who condescends, who empties himself who gets into the dirt, who dies on behalf of humankind so that all who call in the name of Jesus might be saved. He empties himself of a certain type of glory so that we may be glorified eventually. And he does this, right? He does all of this to make an outsider, an insider like Boaz to Ruth. Boaz offers Ruth satisfaction. She eats what she needs to eat and she's satisfied. He invites her to join them for the meal and she eats the meal and she's satisfied. When she's thirsty, she can drink from the vessels, the water that Boaz's men have drawn. In this in the, in the gospel of John, Jesus, he goes up to the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, and it's this week-long celebration, maybe the most important celebration, maybe it's Passover, maybe it's the Feast of Booths, maybe, maybe the most important celebration that the Jews um, take part in at this time of the year, and they spend a week. And, and during that week, during the day, they, they cry out to God for water. Now, today, we're not super worried about water. If I turn on my faucet, I'm like 100% guaranteed for water to come out of that faucet. I can stop and buy a, like a, you know, a water bottle if I need to. I can get a water fountain. I'm not really worried about where water is coming from. I'm not thinking about whether there's enough water like to, to, to water crops, even though maybe that's a problem right now. I don't really know. Um, but, but, but in the time of Jesus, water was not readily available all the time. You really relied on water. So they would spend a week crying out to God, can you give us water? Because water was life-giving. So Jesus does this at the Feast of Tabernacles. On the last day of the feast, the great day, a week, They've been crying out for water for a week. Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And a few chapters before, Jesus is with another outsider, much like Ruth, a Samaritan woman. We read this in John 4. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Church, uh, in Jesus, you can be satisfied. I'm not necessarily saying that you will always be emotionally happy, I'm not saying that your desires in this present life will always be fulfilled. I'm saying in Jesus, you will have what you really do need and your desires will be changed so that you'll have what you want also. Money can be good, but it will not satisfy you. Relationships can be good, but they will not satisfy you. Children, I love my children. Children can be good, but ultimately they will not satisfy me. Power, it can be good but it will not satisfy. Only Jesus will actually satisfy you. I know like there's probably some people sitting at home right now thinking, I'm not satisfied. I'm not satisfied. I I want you to know only Jesus can actually satisfy you. So we see security and and solidarity and satisfaction. We also see a surplus. We see a a surplus. Um, So Ruth is is she's invited to eat with Boaz and she eats until she's satisfied and then she has food left over. And then Boaz tells his men, listen, whatever she wants to glean, let her glean, don't reproach her, let her take anything she wants, don't stop her at all. And then also he's like, and then take stacks of, of, of barley and leave it out for her and let her have that too. And then so she takes what she has and she does whatever process she needs to in order to prepare it and take it home. And it probably ends up being, according to all the, the math that I read in the various commentaries, probably ends up being about a half month's uh, like wage. It's like, like, like imagine um, someone took you to lunch. You're like, oh, thank you so much for lunch. And they're like, I also would like to pay your rent. <laughs> Boaz is giving her more than she needs. Probably more than she wants, more than she can imagine. We see Naomi's response. Maybe Boaz likes Ruth. We'll see. Again, it makes me think of Jesus. Ephesians 1, as Paul is talking about what it is that we have in Christ. But just remember, um, Paul's in prison when he writes this chapter. He's literally imprisoned. And he writes this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Paul is saying this about Jesus. He's saying in him, you have everything that you could possibly need Everything that you could really want far more than you could ever imagine. He's saying you get more than you want with Jesus. Jesus doesn't just satisfy us. He gives us more than we could imagine. Paul is describing the, the, the riches and the wealth that we have in Jesus Christ. And he's saying it's better than anything you could get from anything else. Boaz is is pointing forward to that in the way that he treats Ruth. One other thing I want to say, I think it would be easy to read this, as I've said already, that this is a story about Ruth doing good things and good things happening to her. It's not that type of story. Ruth asks Boaz, she's like, why Why are you treating me this way? What's the reason that you're treating me this way? And I think um, it's important for us to understand that Ruth is not getting what she deserves here. She's getting more than what she deserves. And, and, and the verse that kind of gives us a key to understand what's happening is in, in verse 12. When, when Boaz begins to explain to her why, he doesn't really actually answer all that well. He says, the Lord repay you for what you have done. He, he directs his, his words to being about God. And, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. That analogy, that metaphor wings and refuge is not the sort of analogy you would give for an employer or an employee. It's not the sort of analogy you would give for a contract. It's describing a soul that casts itself upon the mercies of someone else. In this case, the Lord. It's used many times in the Old Testament. We can see it in Psalm 57. Be merciful to me. O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. Ruth called on the name of Yahweh when she says to Naomi, Your God is my God, not knowing how good Yahweh actually was. She throws herself on the mercies of God and that's what Boaz is saying to her. You have all this because you have cast your soul on the mercies of God. You are under the wings of his protection. I want to say this to everyone who's listening in a million different places this morning. That the only hope that you have of salvation is by being under the wings of Jesus, calling on the name of Jesus who died in your place. No amount of work, no amount of righteousness, no amount of church attendance, no amount of good works, none of that is going to achieve for you salvation. It can only be received when you cast your soul on the mercies of God, when you call on the name of Jesus and are protected under his wings. So I want to plead with you. This morning, if you realize, oh, I I have not done that. Call someone you know that's a strong believer. Call us at church, and we'll talk with you about it. And we'll pray with you about it. We see amazing grace in the way that that Boaz treats Ruth. Lastly, we see a rising hope. I want to read these last few verses 17 through 23 again. Ruth arriving back home. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. whose kindness is not forsaking the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with this young woman, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. I want us just to see Naomi's progress. She she began this chapter at the end of chapter one. She's bitter, she's empty, she has nothing. She has no money, she has no food, she has no husband, she has no sons. She has no means of extending her legacy or her line continuing. Her estate is in ruin. But at the end here, there's this crack in the darkness of tragedy that's all around Naomi's life. She realizes that this man that that Ruth has encountered, remember, not by accident, by appointment, this man is not just good, he's not just kind, he is those things, even more, he's the one who can redeem their family. And we'll talk more later about what it means for him to be a redeemer. You'll often hear the word kinsman redeemer, the Hebrew word is goel, and it's this idea of redeeming an estate. Um, And and we'll talk more about the mechanics of that later. I just want to point, point this out. Naomi's hope comes from the identity of Boaz, who it is that Boaz was. That's what gives Naomi hope in her desperate and tragic situation. So as we live our lives today as Christians in the middle, and we're not always content and happy with the world around us and we're confused by the world around us we remember that God is faithful because of who he is that he has already acted decisively through the work of Jesus at the cross and church that he's coming back we can experience God in living faith through amazing grace and with a rising hope let's pray Father, we thank you for our time together this morning as we were studying the second chapter of Ruth. We thank you for the short little book in the Old Testament that can teach us so much, that describes uh, in so many ways what it is that you have for us in Jesus and and just your goodness, Father. I pray for our church today as we are reeling from like a week long of, of election news and as we consider our future, that you would give us trust in you, that we would uh, have faith that you are a good God and that you are in control. Give us wisdom. And Father, right now, uh, unify us. Unify us as a people who are most enamored, most excited about the treasure we have in the name of your son, Jesus. Let us be a people that lifts his name so high that other differences might not divide us. For all these things in the great name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. On behalf of the Hope Chapel family, I'd like to thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast. If you would like to know more about our church, you can visit www.hopechapel.org.